Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby. On this week's show, we're finding out about the UK's National Film and Television School, the courses they run, and how the UK's talent crunch is affecting them. Plus, I catch up with Dominion of Drama's Jeff Norton as we discuss the current state of scripted. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. My guests on this week's show are Dr John Wardle, Director of the UK's National Film and Television School, and Jeff Norton, writer, producer, author, and founder of IP and production company Dominion of Drama. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Great to have you on the show. Now, John, coming to you first... um, National Film and TV School. Obviously, we've we've been speaking over the last few weeks about lots of issues that the production sector in the UK, and I'm imagining around many parts of the rest of the world, are having when it comes to production crew and talent shortages. So it's really timely that we're speaking to you about the National Film and TV School and talent coming into the industry. So first of all, can you just give us a bit of a background to the school and and an overview for those who are not aware of it. Yeah, no no problem. So the the school is actually celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. So 50 years ago, the same arts minister that started the Open University and the National Theatre felt it was important that the UK, if it was going to grow as a kind of destination for film and television production, had its own national film school. And so... In 1971, the school opened its doors in Beaconsfield in the old British Lion Studios and welcomed the first 23 students. And in that group were people like Nick Broomfield, famous documentary maker, Steve Morrison, who went on to found uh, All Three Media and still sits on the board of the BBC. Some of the world's and UK's first members of the uh, British Society of Cinematographers, so notable female DPs. So all sorts of people. And over the last 50 years, the missions remain the same, which is twofold, really. One is to find those unique and new voices that are going to kind of push film and television 
storytelling on. And graduates of ours include people like Laurie Nunn, who created Sex Education, all sorts of people, and also to find and develop the crew of the future. So location managers, production accountants, uh, production managers. And, and I think it's in that latter category that people talk about a shortage of crew. Um, There isn't really a shortage of cinematographers and directors and writers, uh, maybe diverse cinematographers, directors and writers, but not not overall a shortage, whereas there is absolutely a shortage of people who can work in various production roles in production management, location teams, COVID marshals and COVID supervisors, And so that's what a lot of the broadcasters and the production companies who speak to me at the moment are interested in. I mean, it sounds a fantastic organisation and fairly far-sighted. And you say it was a government minister that set this up, uh, that had this vision. Yeah, it was Jenny Lee and um, the school before she got voted out, I think, and then the Tory government was about to come in. So it was kind of real push to get the school open, maybe before it was ready in September 1971. And so the stories of that first cohort sitting in rooms with sheets hung on the wall and portable 16 millimetre projectors, and they were each given their own blanket because it was so cold. (laughs) So the school's kind of infrastructure wasn't there, but the will to kind of get this talent in and, you know, Roger Deakins and Nick Park and uh, eventually people like Lynn Ramsey, Mallory Blackman, all in that kind of first decade or so at the school. Give us an idea of, of, of the school then. How many students do you have? And also tell us about the tutors as well. Are they full-time or are they are they working half in the industry? Or, or tell us about the, the makeup of the school. Yeah, so we've got 600 students on MA and diploma programmes. So typically we have about 10 students in each course. Some courses are two years long. So at any one time we've got 20 cinematographers, 10 in the first year, 10 in the second year. We've got 16 production managers we've got 16 visual effects artists in each year so it's it's about lots of small groups of students with a distinct and particular focus but that makes up quite a big cohort of students and then in terms of the teaching staff we have typically one full-time member of staff in each department so for example Richard Cox who edits Happy Valley, Gentleman Jack, uh, those, uh, those kind of big Sally Wainwright shows He runs our editing department and then he has a budget to bring in lots of other visiting editors. So, for example, Lucian Clayton, who edits Derry Girls and Mick Audsley from the direct, you know, the editor of the Harry Potter series and Eva Lind and all sorts of people. So it's a it's about one full time person and then lots of industry professionals who come in and and teach and talk about areas of particular expertise and specialism. And so you're focused really on turning out career-ready graduates as soon as they go through their typically two-year course, you say. Are they typically coming to you out of sixth form? Uh, you know, is that the majority of them? or, or- They're older, yeah. They're, they're, so the average age of a student at the NSTS is, I think, 26. And so typically right. they've done an undergraduate degree or not. It's not a requirement. About 20% of our students don't have an undergraduate degree. But they've typically worked a bit in the industry, been around and thought, do you know what? This myth that you can work your way up from the runner to be the showrunner of Line of Duty, or it's just not going to happen. I need a portfolio. And they come to us effectively, not because of the MA, but to build the portfolio. And if I take composing as an example, 
you know, a couple of examples of, of students who have kind of come to us. They could all re- read and write music. They're talented musicians, but they've often not written very much to picture. And then when they leave, they've got maybe 40 things in a portfolio across a mix of genres from fixed rig shows to animation to drama to commercials. And they've got a portfolio that really kind of says a lot about who they are and what their ability is. And that leads to amazing opportunities. So Sagan Akinola, who graduated from our course, within six months of leaving, he was announced as the new composer of Doctor Who. And he's done all of the Jodie Whittaker Doctor Who. And then you've got somebody like Addie uh, Chase, who graduated in February, and she's just done the new Netflix series, Heartstoppers, straight out of her course, you know, straight out of uh, her MA with us. And I, I don't know of another uh, kind of education institution, you know, in the country where that happens, where you, you study for a thing, you build a portfolio, and you don't go out and work your way up. You go out and you do the job you've trained for. In terms of how you interact with the industry then i mean presumably are you funded to a certain extent by the industry or is it purely you funded by course fees it's three things it's about 50 percent course fees the other 50 percent is a mix of government money via the department for culture media and sport and also industry support so we have key partner sponsors uh, the BBC is our biggest key partner sponsor. And then you've got Sky and Channel 4 and ITV and the Film Distributors Association and the UK Cinema Association, who all contribute to the school. And, and I think they do it because they look at the programmes on their channels or that their studios are making, and they see the direct correlation between who was at the school and their their kind of most high profile and most successful shows. And as long as we keep that going, long may that continue. It takes foresight, doesn't it? It takes people looking into the future saying, well, look, we're going to invest now to make sure we've got great people in three or four years' time. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question, really. I mean, in terms of the industry now and the and the shortages in the areas that you mentioned earlier on, I mean, are you finding that more and more businesses in the industry are getting in touch with you? Or try to take students maybe before they've finished their courses. I mean, how are you sensing that the production boom or this demand for content and, and specialist skills within production, how's that affecting you on a daily basis? Oh, I get a weekly call from a producer or a, high, a leading production company, mainly, mainly around high-end TV, where they're trying to crew up for roles or they're asking me to share kind of job roles with the NFTS alumni community, that's pretty new. And, but I think it's a really good thing because I think the criticism of our industry is that it's been about who you know and that unless you're in those circles, it's quite difficult to get your break. Well, you know, maybe you've worked with the same cinematographer for the last 10 years, but that cinematographer's now signed up for a nine-month, you know, streamer, high-end TV show and you can't work with them. Then you start looking around. Hopefully, and you talk to organizations like the NFTS, but others, and you hopefully find and bring in new talent. So I think it can be a good thing because I think it's, there's a danger that our industry is largely revolved around ever decreasing circles of who you know and who you trust. And, and I think the boom in production has meant people are having to reach out beyond their comfort zone. Yeah. And I suppose there's also a danger as well of underqualified individuals going into roles because of the demand is such 
And then that can lead to problems in what we already know. We've talked about on the show before, and it's a pretty stressful environment, isn't it? In some cases, some shoots, there may be huge demands, you know, really low budgets, or there may be downward pressure on the budget on a particular production because of uh, additional COVID costs, and maybe the broadcaster doesn't want to cover those. And therefore, there's also a shortage of crew. So the company of crew, if you like, might not be the same makeup as it might have been five years ago. And that that can obviously lead to these problems, can't it, of stress and uh, bullying, obviously, is is, is one of the, these yeah. uh, ongoing issues that we discuss. That must be something that concerns you as well when you're taking your your students who who you've you know you've nurtured over two years and then you know sending them out into the wide world if you like and then there are these other issues yeah I, I hear all of that and i and i absolutely see it happening as well i think it tends to happen where key roles people have been over over promoted into roles they're not yet ready to do uh, line producers i think is a, is an example of that where those people have a disproportionate impact on the experience of the rest of the crew. So if they're out of their depth, that can be a real problem. Uh, It's probably less the case in certain other disciplines because it's an opportunity for my graduates as well to go out and get great credits quickly. Yeah, We've prepared them well enough to do that. But I always kind of advise graduates as they leave, take the job you think you can deliver and do well because you don't know if there'll be another one behind it unless you do that. So you've got to be confident you can deliver on it. These things are always two-sided, which is there's a diversity issue in the industry as well. So if we keep going back to the same trusted people, we will never open up our industry to be more inclusive. And so sometimes that means you do have to give opportunities to people where on paper it doesn't necessarily look like they've got the experience. But if you do that, then you've got to be prepared to support them and stand by them and help them get through that and succeed because their success is is key to making more shows and giving other people work and, and so on. Yeah. In terms of your cohort for every year, I mean, are you oversubscribed? You know, is it difficult to get into the National Film and Television School? Yeah, there was a stat my predecessor used to give, which is it's more competitive than Oxford and Cambridge at a postgraduate level. I think we get something like two and a two and a half thousand applicants for about 300 places. Wow. So it's pretty competitive, but but it's a bit lumpy, which is that we get far fewer applications for some disciplines than others. So for directing and cinematography and writing and editing huge number of applications whereas for script supervision vision mixing production accounting fewer but maybe those applications are more targeted a higher quality you know if you know you want to be a script supervisor and you are applying and you go through the the effort of putting in all the paperwork you're probably got the kind of the whereabouts to, to do it whereas not every person who applies for our director's course is a serious candidate if that makes sense yeah, how do you whittle them down then? I mean, if you're if you if you're getting it's like uh, apprentice, <laughs> yeah. so, so basically, for for almost every course, we start with portfolio. So we're looking at what people have made before. That's not you can't do that everywhere because you can't do that for things like vision mixing, where people just wouldn't have had that opportunity. So you're looking at where does it move from being something they say they're passionate about to actually having done something, shown some talent for it. So we start with that. Then it's interviews and 
and then it's sometimes selection workshops where people come for a week to the NFTS and we might invite 20 people to the NFTS in order to then select 10 to come onto the course. So that's that's the apprentice bit. But it's so important that you, you get people who know what they want to do because the thing about the NFTS is you apply in a discipline. You don't start on production design and then halfway through think you're going to be a director. So it's about finding people who are going to stick in their lane and be great in that and build a portfolio and leave and get a job in that. And so a lot of what we're testing is, is it, are you sure this is what you really want to do? Is, are you sure you know enough about this to be concrete? This is what you want to spend the next two years, if not the rest of your life doing. And also then about finding people with the people skills and the transferable skills to get on and be part of a, a collaborative industry because film and TV shows are never made by individuals, contrary to lots of auteur theory. It's about teams of people all kind of pooling their collective, you know, skills and effort. So you want people who get that and are going to push into that and thrive in that environment. When it comes to the future, because obviously you're always, the the individuals, as you've pointed out, have, have been through the school, have, have gone on to become, you know, some of the major names in the industry. You know, we're talking now about this term metaverse has just started to crop up over the last certainly in the wider tv industry i think over the last couple of months ai is becoming you know really prevalent uh, across all parts of our lives not just tv production so uh, how are you looking in terms of you know virtual reality metaverse ai is that something that's very much on your radar in terms of the skills that are needed for the future are you going to be building new courses around that those sort of areas yeah, probably not in AI, but probably making sure the courses that we deliver understand the implications of AI for what they do. So to bring that alive a little bit, we we have a virtual reality and augmented reality kind of focus at the school through a centre we run called Story Futures Academy, which we we work with Royal Holloway on, which is government funded. And we worked over the last 12 months with Asif Kapadia to make his first VR film that premiered at the uh, London Film Festival. And that's about working with traditional film and television makers and thinking about how does story translate into these new spaces? What does point of view look like when you're working in a three-dimensional space and you can't cut? You know, how do you direct the audience's attention and tell stories that are still compelling and narratively led when you're in a more game-like environment. So we're, we're exploring that with both professionals and with current students. And then another big strand of work is around virtual production, which in three years' time we'll just, talk, we'll just call production. <laughs> and so this is where we're using LED backgrounds, and we have an LED wall at the school, which is 12 metres wide by 4 metres high. And we're looking at what does that mean for visual effects? What does that mean for production design and cinematography? Because I think these jobs will all exist. It's just the emphasis will change. You know, things that take a VFX artist a long time to do at the moment will become something that AI can accelerate and make more efficient. But it will just move the emphasis of the VFX artist into other areas. And so it's about being cognizant of what those things might be and where the changes might come so that students leave with a set of skills that they can rely on for at least the next five years, if not for their whole career. We've all been through 
how many waves is it of COVID now? I think it's three, isn't it, that we've been through so far. And, you know, productions have shut down or there's been a various amounts of virtual production, as you mentioned. Education's been really hit by this as well. So how have you managed to keep the school going? Because presumably for a certain amount of that time, it was only virtual learning? Yeah. So our our lockdowns, and you're right, how many has there been, went a bit like this. So March 2020 to June 2020, we were fully online. And we got through that by, it was like Dunkirk here, we, sh- we shipped over 100 high-end workstations to students' homes. So we had staff putting computers in the back of their cars and driving them to students' houses. Because how do you, how do you continue to learn to be a games artist or a visual effects artist or a composer if you don't have access to that equipment. So we did that on the 17th of March, like the day after we took the decision to close for in-person. And then we also organised masterclasses with amazing people because it occurred to me all of a sudden every major film and television maker in the world was locked in their house with not much to do. So we had masterclasses with David Fincher, Elizabeth Moss, Steve McQueen, Edward Norton, and it was a really rich time. Then in June 2020, we got back to in-person production and we tracked the BFC guidelines and we were really at the vanguard of that. I think we must have been alongside like War of the Worlds and one or two other shows among the first uh, projects to shoot in June 2020. And we made our entire graduation slate of films over that summer. It cost us about 20% more for every film to test people, to hire multiple vehicles so you didn't pack people into minibuses, to cater individual meals rather than mum's homemade chilli. But we got through that. And then uh, from September 2020, we got back to about half and half. So half of teaching in person and half remotely where it made sense. And then it was a shock again in January 2021 to go fully back online for five weeks and then since March 2021, we've been back in person at school. And, and the way we cope is every student and member of staff does two lateral flow device tests a week. And we have a kind of room kind of capacity, really kind of so we're not packing people into spaces. And there's hand sanitizer everywhere. And we've just recently reintroduced masks so that we can carry on. Students are desperate to have an in-person experience. How do you learn to be a sound designer and mix in Dolby Atmos? from home. You just can't do it. It isn't translatable. So there are certain things where they have to be here and in person. Uh, And then there's other things we've learned to do really brilliantly on, on Zoom. It sounds like you, you guys have, uh, have done a great job of that. Let's keep our fingers crossed that, you know, we don't have to lock down again, but I suppose if we do, everybody's, you know, used to it now. We know what we, uh, what we have to do to, to get through it. Jeff, coming to you thanks for coming on the show how are you i'm great and thanks for having me it's uh, fantastic to be talking with you i feel like you've been in my ear once a week over the last year and a half and congratulations on the podcast thank you so much jeff that's very kind of you and uh, some would say that's not such a great thing me being in their ear every week but there we go also this podcast has, has become you know a, a product of this uh, the whole lockdown and, and the pandemic but it's it's great because it gives me the opportunity to speak to folks like yourself who've had a really interesting career development in their own right and as we're talking about education and development and in the industry tell us about your background jeff because you 
graduated from Harvard Business School, didn't you? And you've had a really interesting career path up to this point. Can you talk us through that? Sure. Yeah. No, I've I've got a bizarre background, really. And in a way, I came late into this business. I'll, I'll dial all the way back. I, I actually went to film school in undergrad, and I'm from Canada originally. And when I graduated, we didn't have the crew crunch we have now. I mean, people were coming out of arts and sciences and, and film school and working at McDonald's. You just couldn't get a job. And I, I saw that coming and I got myself into the advertising business. So I actually started my career in brand management at Procter & Gamble, joined them right out of uh, right out of college and, and did fairly well there. And they moved me to Cincinnati, Ohio, which is sort of in the, in the middle of the Midwest of the US. And I was at that point keen to get back into what was my true love of storytelling. But being Canadian in the States, visas and immigration and all that stuff is very difficult. And so I went after a scholarship. I won a scholarship to Harvard Business School. And the the reason I pursued that is because they would take care of all my immigration paperwork and lots of other places wouldn't. Uh, So I, I used grad school basically to be able to stay in the US. And then from there, I did all sorts of um, internships. Justin, you know, I, I worked on the Warner Brothers lot and for a bunch of producers and things like that. And 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 one of the things that I, I learned was the importance of of being able to wrap your arms around IP and and really put yourself in a position where you can't get fired from a project. I, I'll never forget this, and I won't I won't name names because it's inappropriate. But I remember being um, in a big production company as a lowly lowly intern. I mean, I started in the mailroom, and and but you learn a lot when you do that, and. I remember the head of the company came in one day and fired the head of production simply to save his salary so that he could buy a piece of artwork. And it was a shock. It was a shock to all of us. There was about 20 of us in the office. The lesson I learned was you've got to find a way to make yourself indispensable. And and one of the ways I figured out is that as talented as this head of production was, he didn't own anything. He didn't own any IP. He wasn't attached to anything. Um, He was kind of just a for hire body. And so I went out and I found the rights to a book series that I loved when I was a little boy called Choose Your Own Adventure. And they, they weren't as popular over here, Justin, but in, in the US and Canada, they were massive. They, they were, I think, the third largest book series until Harry Potter. And that was my first foray into getting into intellectual property and wrapping my arms around rights and producing that. And we got that up in 2006. And then I moved over here, which wasn't in the life plan, but my wife is British. And so we came over to London. I knew not a soul, not a single person in the, in the business. I was very lucky. I got a, a really cool role at a company that doesn't exist anymore, but at the time was called Corian. Not if you remember them, Justin, but Corian was an IP roll-up. You know, they owned the rights to Enid Blyton, Mr. Men, right? That's right. It was a great business, actually. They owned Agatha Christie, the Georges Simenon estate, uh, we made Octonauts. It was a fantastic kind of virtual studio where we would own the rights and then we would cause production to happen. We weren't a physical production company. We always partnered with other production companies. Um, and I did that for a few years. And to be honest, I basically decided I wanted to see if I could have a literary estate of my own. So I, I probably did the stupidest thing imaginable and burned my suit and uh, started writing books. Not many people will know that about you in terms of, you know, you are quite a prolific author, aren't you? 
Yeah, fairly prolific. It's funny you mentioned the the metaverse earlier with John. The very first book I wrote, this is going back about 12 years ago, was a young adult thriller called Meta Wars. And Meta Wars is basically exactly what Mark Zuckerberg is doing today. It's the sort of the first book is called Fight for the Future and it's a kind of high-tech Matrixy, Alex Ridery type thrill ride uh, set in a future internet world where people are vying for control over what's Web 4.0. And so it's funny that you mentioned all things metaverse to John because that's um, you know that's been something I've been kind of curious about and interested in for for a lot of years. And that that one it did well, and and they ordered a sequel, and there's four books in that series. And one of the things that I I realized is that I had more ideas than time, which is a blessing and a curse. And so I write about one book roughly every year, about every 14 months or so. I also come up with the ideas for books and I sort of quote unquote show run them. So I'll come up with, I might write the outline, I'll write all the the characters, the Bible, and then I work with other authors and and then we get them published under various pseudonyms or co-branded names or whatever. So yeah, prolific is a, is a good word. I think I've been, I've been pretty busy on that front. I've met you years ago through when you, your business was part of the Q group, which obviously everybody knows about Q and, and how that whole group crashed and burned. But talk us through that in terms of you know, how you were involved with them and, and how that whole scenario unfolded. Sure. Yeah. Um, how long have you got? Uh, <laughs> no, I'll, 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 I'll give, you know, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, so I'll... Um... I'll be polite, but um, I was in a deal with Q. I wasn't. My company wasn't one of the initial um, six companies that were part of that first roll-up uh, when they did the SPAC, uh, which I think was 2017. Uh, my company joined in the, I guess it was February of 18. And Justin, for the first 12, 13 months, it was fantastic. You know, it was exciting. There was this sense that this was a, a, a dynamic, forward-looking company. You know, that was playing from a, a playbook that you mentioned all three, or John rather mentioned all three earlier, you know, that companies like E1 and all three had done very successfully where you bring together disparate production entities and the sum of the parts is uh, is worth more than them um, on their own. But, you know, after about 13 months, it was pretty clear they were running out of money. And and I, I remember, I'll never forget, Justin, I remember you were, in, you were actually in the office and, and we sat down and uh, had a great old meeting about maybe doing some PR consulting and, and whatnot. And afterwards, as I, as, as I walked you to the lift and I turned around and I don't think we've ever spoken about this actually. And I remember seeing at that exact moment, a pile of unpaid bills on the receptionist's desk, including a warning from the phone company that they were going to send the bailiffs in. Gosh, that was, what, mid-19, probably, spring-19? And so I think ultimately they just got over their skis and um, you know they were pretty much operating as an insolvent company for a good six, seven, eight months, and it finally caught up with them. And so from my perspective, it was yeah, it was certainly catastrophic. You know, they they ended up owing me a substantive amount of money that I'll, obviously I'll never see. But you know, these things are are sent to test us. And I ran into someone last week at Content London who I hadn't seen in the real world in a couple of years, and and she said, "Jeff, you you've got so much more gray hair now." I thought I've earned every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't told me that story before. That's uh, amazing, actually. I wish I'd have turned around and looked on the uh, receptionist desk and seen that. That's amazing. And many people have read various reports across the trade media, particularly at the time of, you know, how this all unfolded and 
companies being asked to send money back to HQ and all the rest of it. But going through that process must really knock you. And and I think a lot of people also didn't realize. And the pandemic swept in pretty shortly after that. So many people have, have struggled so hard to basically buy their businesses back to start with and then almost relaunch themselves or keep going and uh, not as surprised that you've got more gray hair. But when you look back at it, what have you learned then from your alliance with Q? How can you take that forward? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, experience is here to teach us, right? And, um, you know, I think there's lots of things that you can learn in school. And I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what, um, uh, what John does at, at the film school. I've actually been to um, the facility at Beaconsfield, and it, it's amazing. And, and, and the things that uh, the students learn, and one of the things I, I always remember that impressed me with the students there is their work ethic. Um, sometimes there are things that you just can't learn in school. You have to learn in the, in the real world. And, uh, you know, perhaps if I had started this journey 20 years earlier, I would have had some of those lessons under my belt. But I think it's really about, you know, when something doesn't smell right, you got to trust that, right? And I think for a lot of us, and it's really funny because now, and in fact, I saw most of them at, at Content London last week, but I'm actually doing business now with a lot of the alumni from, from the Q group. And if there's one upside to all of this, it's actually brought a lot of us closer together, much closer than we ever were when we were formally in, in, in the group. But one of the things that you have to listen to is your your sort of inner spidey sense, right? You, when When something doesn't seem right, um, you got to listen to that and no amount of logic or people trying to tell you otherwise. And I think I was probably willfully naive for a little while because I wanted everything to work. I thought very highly of, of the folks who were running Q. I thought this is, they're onto a winner. Um, I had a fair amount of my own personal capital tied up in it. And so you, you want to think that it's going to work. You give, you give it the benefit of the doubt. And I think the, the biggest thing that I've taken away from all of this is you've got to listen to that little voice inside you. When something doesn't feel right, you got to listen to it and act on it intuition use your intuition it's almost like uh, use the force <laughs> yeah you know it's funny you know i think we you know we all have sometimes you've, you've got these little as you say intuition you've just got this little early warning signal that goes off and you can either listen to it or you can explain it away and i think i'm probably guilty for a number of months of explaining it away again i don't want to speak ill of q but you know i'll never forget you know they weren't they were basically funding my company up until the point where they weren't and then it was like, well, the money will come next month. Oh, it'll come next week. And, you know, I kept the thing going on my credit card for a number of months. And, you know, at no time, and, and part of the issue is I was ramping up to get ready for production, but at no time did I take a step back and say, wait, I was sort of like frog in the boiling water a little bit. Because at no time did I say, wait a second, the water is getting a little bit warm here. We probably need to hop out of the pot. And that's what I mean by willful naivete. Um, and that, that's probably my biggest lesson. On to brighter sunlit uplands, as we are now. Uh, Tell us what you're up to now, Jeff, because obviously you're you're still writing, but you you are also involved in production as well, or, or you certainly have been recently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, really what, uh, when, when the Q thing went under, um, I went through all, I don't know how many stages of grief there are, <laughs> but I went through all of them three times in a very rapid amount of time. But ultimately, you just have to pick yourself up and keep going. So I founded a, a new company, uh, which is called Dominion of Drama. And Dominion of Drama really does two things. It's the, it's the vehicle for my own writing and my own creativity. Uh, but I've been very lucky through the pandemic to have a number of 
script commissions uh, from broadcasters, larger uh, distributors, in some cases, partner production companies. And then also, I've got a real, I guess, going back to the very first thing I ever did, right? I've got a real interest in wrapping my arms around IP and using that as the foundational base to build upon. Uh, so I've sort of been very quietly optioning some books over the last uh, couple of years. And, and, and in many cases, those are projects where for whatever reason, maybe it's a more female point of view or a diverse perspective, it's not right for me to be the writer on it. So I'll, I'll, I'll go out, I'll look for other writers, I'll look for, in many cases, other producers. I, I really like, Justin, partnering with other people. Um, so what Dominion tries to do is put itself at the center of the IP and then create a kind of virtual scale, right? By partnering with other people who've got a skill set that maybe I don't have. And that way I don't bear the costs, the capital costs of scaling up, but I can share the, the upside by partnering with, you name it, producers, distributors, broadcasters, um, and I find that model in terms of that type of project by project collaboration works really, really well. And, and you can get the you can get the best brains and the best creative minds on each project because every project's a little bit different. I mean, I, I do only scripted, but I do work in the YA space. I work in the, the primetime space. Um, so that works for me really well. And it's, it's also a way to keep learning. I find every time I, I work with a collaborator, I'm always, I'm like a sponge. I'm always learning something from them. Um, and so from my perspective, it's just a great way to, to, to build a big slate. I and mean, we've got, I think we've got an incredibly exciting slate of scripted projects. We've got about, gosh, there's probably about 30, 30 there, 10 of which are fairly big pieces of book-based IP. Um, and many of them are now set up with, with broadcasters or with larger partners. Um, and it's just about moving all of that forward in the right direction and, and, and getting into production at the right time. Mm. It, it sounds like a mini Corian in a way that you're, you know, you're sitting with the IP and looking to spin that out in different areas. Is that a conscious move then to sort of recreate what you were doing to an extent back then? You know, I, I, that's a really good observation. I hadn't really thought about it consciously like that, but I think you're exactly right. What gets me really excited is the characters, the story, and the story world, right? Those three fundamental things, right? Those three kind of parts of the stool. And then everything else from there, you can kind of build out, but you've got to have those three things to start with. And I suppose in a way that was the Corian model, which is you start with these, these stories that were typically based in books, not exclusively, but typically. And, and one of the reasons I often like to start with books is somebody, the author, right? And, and in fact, you know, John mentioned earlier that that television and film is a very collaborative medium. But actually, most people don't realize that that getting a book published is incredibly collaborative. There's a whole group of people whose names are never on the book, and it's it's chiefly the editor who are the sort of unsung heroes of the um, the publishing industry who help get the best out of an author and get the best on the page, but so much work has already been done to really get to know the characters, the story, the mechanics of the world, that when you come to adapt, you've got a really solid base. It's like building a, a skyscraper on sand or amazing concrete. I like to go through the discipline. And it's one of the reasons that I write novels is it forces me, as a creator, it forces me to make sure that with only 
black ink on the white page, right? No, there's no distractions. You don't have Edward Norton. You don't have amazing CGI animation. All you've got is words written out in a certain order. And if you can elicit an emotional response from the reader, then chances are, not necessarily, but chances are, I think you've got a good shot of converting that emotional response also to the screen. So that's kind of why I work that way. But that's a really good observation. I might I might use that. Do yeah. Well, you can. Uh, I'll put my uh, copyright on that, Jeff. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but um, but you talked about Content London and all scripted projects. How do you see the current state of scripted? Because obviously, it's been in a certain amount of hiatus when we were in lockdown. A feverish amount of development, which is now seeing the light of day, or to a certain extent, I think, contributing to this overall, well, not only there's the demand from the streamers and all the rest for great content, but there's an enormous amount of fully developed projects ready to go. How are you seeing the state of the scripted area? You know, the first thing I would say is, there's never been a better time to be in the content business. Um, I mean, there is just a a voracious appetite on behalf, not just the buyers, but the audience. You know, I think one of the things that's happened over the last, and it predates the pandemic, it's probably about 10, 12 years now, is that we've we've trained the audience to expect excellence. And so scripted drama is is sort of the new art form, I think, of the 21st century. You know, if the 20th century, it was film, you know, in the cinema. And, and before that, I think it was the novel or at the very least the serialized uh, serialized novel in the sense of Dickens, I think scripted drama is the art form of our time. And maybe the next art form will be something in, in VR that, that, that John mentioned. But for now, the, the appetite is absolutely voracious. So that's a good, amazing thing. And we should feel so blessed and so lucky. At the same time, there are a lot of challenges, right? There's a lot of projects that were stalled because of the pandemic. So there's a real log jam in terms of getting to camera. And that is definitely causing this kind of crew crunch that people are talking about. The other thing that's going on is bizarrely, even though there's never been a better time to tell these types of stories, the threshold or the bar over which you need to, to hurdle is never been higher, right? So you hear from people saying, oh, I've got a great package, but unless it's got Nicole Kidman and Steven Spielberg, and and, and it's 100% financed by Jeff Bezos, it's not moving forward. So you've got this really weird conundrum in the marketplace right now. But fundamentally, I think the, the commissioners and the buyers are still looking for great stories. They're looking for things that people haven't seen before. And Certainly, in the near term, I think the the audience is there. You know, people are are, are looking to television, whatever television form it takes. You know, it's, it's screen based media to be entertained, and so I think we've got an amazing opportunity to deliver. And now it's time for story of the week, the TV industry news that's caught my guest's eye in the past seven days. John, let's start with you. What's your story of the week? Well, I think probably the long promised release of data from Barb about. Uh, which included the streamers for the first time. We saw the kind of October numbers and the kind of there were lots of really interesting little facts in what was released. But you know, to see that Squid Game is less popular than Blankety Blank is um, is always a healthy reminder about the state of the industry as it is now, not necessarily where it's going, but as it is now. I mean, when Country File and Blankety Blank, which nobody talks about. 
are outperforming Squid Game. It does give you a pause for thought. But I think everybody was was surprised, but obviously one of the reasons why Netflix and a lot of the others have been keeping their figures so closely guarded and not sharing, it's actually because they're not that good. Yeah, the stats are a bit confusing though, aren't they? Because the, what I've just said about Blankety Blank outperforming Squid Game is on what people watch on TV sets. It doesn't necessarily capture people watching on iPads and tablets, which seems a bit odd to me that that's the measure. It's probably not the case if you factor those things in. A reminder that for millions of people, the way they watch their TV is sitting down in their lounge with their families or their significant other and watching their favourite show. We kind of live in a bit of an echo chamber, don't we, where the only thing that seemed to be on in October was Squid Game. And we forgot that Silent Witness and Shetland and all those kind of shows were doing really decent numbers at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that is very true. And particularly when you work in the TV industry, it's all everybody's talking about is succession. And as you say, Squid Game and whatever else is is the hottest new streaming show. So um, it's certainly useful, this Barb data. I mean, hopefully it will become more detailed and we can sit back and look at, you know, different demographics you know because I'm, I'm assuming that you know if you're looking at 18 to 24 year olds or various different age bands that there'll be huge difference in 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 those sort of figures but it's it was really fascinating to see that how about you jeff what's your story of the week well, i think mine is is an echo of a story that broke a few weeks ago as you probably recall facebook has rebranded itself as meta and mark zuckerberg has declared that they are now a metaverse company and you know that story has been told, and I think we've digested that over the last few weeks. But there was something that caught my eye just the other day, which is um, a piece on Business Insider, which was a piece about the digital haves and have-nots and the risk of the next evolution of the internet leaving a lot of people behind. And, and it really struck a chord with me because one of the things that I was very aware of during the pandemic, particularly when we were, when we were all at home you know, trying to educate our children. I've got, I've got two young boys. And there's a lot of people that just did not have access to the hardware, let alone the broadband, to be able to do that. And I think one of the things as a, as a country and as a society we need to be very aware of is that as we move to the next iteration of you know, universal computing and, and, and connective computing and whatever you want to call it, the metaverse or web 3.0, that there will be some people who are left out of that. And, and I think there'll be very real consequences to that. And I think it's a bit of a wake-up call that I think uh, as, as a society and as an economy, we can't let people be left behind if that's where the economy is moving to. A fascinating point. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. We're also talking about Web3, about how it's going to be seamless, isn't it? You know, and the payment companies are potentially going to be really, really powerful. You know, that has implications as well. You know, if you haven't got, as you say, I haven't got access to that, there may be lots of different activities that you're just not able to uh, participate in, which is one of the things that we, you know, clearly don't want to see. And, uh, there are enough problems, I think, that the social media companies have, have got on their plates right now. It'd be, be nice if they maybe uh, made a bit more effort to fix those before they actually propel us all into Web3. And now it's time for Hero of the Week and Get in the Bin, where my guests get to nominate their best and worst people or things of the past week. Jeff, who are you nominating as your Hero of the Week? So my hero of the week, and this is pure coincidence because I didn't realize that John was going to be on the on the podcast together with us, uh, is actually uh, below the line crew. 
I think over the last few weeks, and, and very sadly, the, the tragedy that played out on the set of Rust has really educated everybody, not only the, the importance and the value of crew, and obviously there's what's going on in terms of labor shortages, but I think for the longest time, there is a real separation between the above the line and the below the line. And it was almost an upstairs, downstairs, you know, Downton Abbey type, type aspect. And I think if there's one positive thing that may come out of the tragedy and also out of the pandemic is a real appreciation that the people who come together to actually manufacture, to actually make the shows that we enjoy, deserve more respect, they deserve better hours, we should just do better by them. So that's my hero of the week, is everybody who's out there in the freezing, pissing rain trying to get a TV show in the can. Yeah, okay. How about you, John? Who's your hero of the week? Yeah, I think it's Jack Thorne for me. With all the announcements this week and the launch of underlying health conditions and the focus on disability and inclusion in our industry, I think Jack's just doing amazing work. It started with the McTaggart, didn't it, in August? And he just keeps going. And and I think Colin Young, who founded the NFTS, died sadly last week. And he had a famous phrase, which was that filmmakers should be missionaries for a better way of life. And I think Jack really embodies that. He really, he just uses his platform to allow other people through the gate. And I just think it's such an important and powerful thing for a group of people in a disabled community who have largely been excluded from both in front of and behind the camera in the shows that we make. I think there's a story on broadcast at the moment about there's only one production studio in the UK that is actually disabled friendly in terms of toilets and entrances and all sorts so we've got such a long way to go but it's only going to change if we have somebody like jack pushing that that message yeah absolutely he's doing great work shining a light on that issue and when it comes to getting in the bin john who or what are you telling to get in the bin well you mentioned succession and i was torn about this one because i didn't know whether to put him down as my hero or my villain but uh kendall's birthday party was so I think Kendall is probably needs to get in the bin for ever thinking that was going to be a good idea. Maybe there's an NFT of the shot where he actually goes up on the cross, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'd bid for that, I tell you. All right, Kendall Roy is going in the bin. Um, who are you chucking in the bin, Jeff? Well, I think for me, it's not a who, it's a what. And it's this it's this bloody new variant, which I'm going to rebrand as the Grinch variant because I'm, I'm worried that it's going to steal Christmas. I think like everybody in the world and certainly in our business, we're just <laughs> we're just sick of the pandemic. And it's not that we assume that it's over, but it's just so disruptive. And I think I'm going to put the Grinch variant in the, in the bin. Okay, quite right. And as we're all looking, or many of us in the industry are, are looking ahead to the new year and, you know, we've got Nappy coming up, we've got Real Screen coming up and obviously lots of other international events. It's starting to throw those into a little bit of uncertainty as to whether or not we're going to be able to get in and out of the country. But we'll certainly plough on, I think, until we're, we're told we can't otherwise. I think we'll get there. Obviously, the testing companies stand to, uh, to stand to do quite well out of this. People they crave getting together. You know, I think that was true at, for those folks that did come to Content London. I was at the MIA uh, Italy market a few months ago. I think, you know, our business is a people business and we love getting together. So hopefully we'll find a way to make that happen. We just have to share a thought, don't we, for all those poor events organizers? Because, you know, if you're organizing Content London and the announcement about Omicron comes out and then, you know, multiple execs cancel, it just must be so stressful. I've lived that particular dream of, trying to organize events and not knowing if it's going to happen or not. And it's, it's really tough. 
Yeah, when there's the best laid plans and then uh, everything snatched away at the last minute. I thought they did a great job. They pulled it together and and it was obviously uh, still a successful event. So congratulations to those guys. John, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Telecast this week. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Really different aspects of the industry that you're both involved with, but really fascinating to take your uh, takes on uh, on your various different areas in education and then uh, development, writing and, and production. So thanks for taking the time to coming on the show and uh, we'll see you very soon. And if we don't see you before, have a great Christmas. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. John, great to meet you. Nice to meet you, Jeff. All the best. Well, that's about it for another week's telecast. As always, thanks a lot for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues. And why not sign up for our free newsletter, Telecast Plus? Just search Telecast and sign up on our website. You can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. Until next Thursday, our last show of the year, stay safe.